0: This is the Toast It Sister podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. Episode for you. This weekend, I went to the second Indigenous Comic Con at the Isleta Resort and Casino here in Albuquerque. There were dozens of native comic book makers, illustrators, artists, cosplayers, graphic designers, and video gamers. I walked around looking for food, of course, and I found a lot of it, surprisingly. I talked with 11 native people about how food plays a role in their creative work. That's how I'm going to take you around Comic-Con right now. I met with Aragon Starr. She's Kickapoo from Oklahoma and she's the creator of the Super Indian comic book. Here she explains the significance of cheese in the comic book.
1: Super Indian ate tainted commodity cheese and got superpowers. And that is the through line through this whole story. And we don't necessarily talk about food and, you know, the issues, but um, that's how he became super Indian, because of the cheese.
0: Can you kind of explain what the significance is of commodity cheese in Native America?
1: I certainly can. Um, you know, commods as we say, you know, are definitely something that's part of most Indian people's diets, whether we like it or not. Um, You know, that's kind of like government leftovers that get distributed to communities, you know, if you meet a certain economic uh, income. (laughs) And sadly, most of us do, especially artists like me. It's like, oh, wait, is it time to get my commods? You know, we'll go down to the, you know, distribution house and go pick up our peanut butter and powdered eggs and stuff like that. But uh, commodity cheese is actually not bad. You know, it's kind of like Velveeta and you know, big old block of cheese, that like a doorstopper kind of a thing.
0: Yeah, it's American cheese, right?
1: Yeah, it's American cheese, yeah. So, um, you know, in Super Indian's universe, that's just something, you know, that happened to Hubert Logan, who is Super oh, wow. Indian. When he was at a birthday party when he was a kid, he, he received it as a birthday present, this block of cheese, that was tainted with this super secret government uh, additive that was supposed to grow kabod bods in 12 ways called resium. And so he, eat, he ate the cheese, his dog, D.O.G., ate the cheese, and so did his sort of frenemy, uh, Derek Thunder. So, of course, you know, Super Indian goes in a positive way, so does the dog, and the dog even has a library card. He's pretty smart. Uh, but his friend Derek went the route of Lex Luthor and has decided to, you know, I, I don't like these Indian people, and I'm going to show them what's what and, you know, and, and just try to be all that. <laughs>
0: but that's how that's how it all kind of came to be around the corner I met with a pair of youngsters from Phoenix their booth was lined with self-published comic books and they graciously gave me one called spiral here they are
2: okay hi uh, my name is Tatum Bowie Uh, I uh, worked with uh, artist Damon Begay on this book called Spiral. It is a uh, of, sort of a parody uh, story on uh, Jinji Ito's Izumaki. Uh, it's a horror manga in which a spiral shape is um, haunting this town. And I really liked that story, so we came together and created a native spin on that where a native couple are actually uh, haunted by the spiral as well, but it manifests in the shape of a cinnamon roll. Uh, so they have to go uh, to the res and see a medicine man to try to get blessed, uh, to get rid of the cinnamon roll, uh, spirit that's haunting them. So it was intended, I think, to be a bit of a horror itself, but it ended up being really funny, so we just went with it.
3: Uh, hi, I'm Damon Bigay, and I make comics. Apart from it being based on Juji Ito's uh, Uzumaki book, it's also based on our love for uh, cinnamon rolls. Um, we live right next to a uh, cafe called um, Copper Star, and they have a really good cinnamon roll, it's like drizzled with the um, frosting, the glaze, yeah. But it's not sweet at all, it's crazy. There's like a lot on there, but it, it, just, it just works really well. And the cinnamon roll is more of like a, um, like a bread base, kind of like a biscuit almost. Uh, so I like that about my cinnamon rolls. We just both love that place, so we thought it would be funny to kind of um, have our own tip of the hat to that place that's where the story came from and also like um the uh like Navajo sphere of like counter clockwise like anything kind of stuff and so we would just want to kind of mix all of that and kind of make fun of everything I guess
0: how would you explain uh your perfect cinnamon roll the same the same one from
3: the
2: Uh, Definitely. Um, We would sometimes just go there really early in the mornings after we had spent a while, you know, working on our comics and um, we'd try to get there as early as possible to Copper Star because then they would run out of the cinnamon rolls. Everybody would, you know, like that place too. So um, whenever we got the cinnamon roll, we would just sit there and draw. Um, So I think, yeah, that would be my my perfect cinnamon roll as well. It's like a victory roll.
0: Next, I met with Jason Eagle Speaker, author and publisher with Eagle Speaker Publishing. He was showing me a comic book about Nappy a Blackfeet trickster.
4: My connection with Noppy actually has to do with the famous Eugene Braverock from Wonder Woman. Um, his character, if you pay close attention, uh, is referred to as the Chief, but he does not call himself the Chief. He calls himself Noppy, and which is actually... Uh, where we're from i'm blackfoot as well as gene and Napi is our trickster so he is a foolish being teaches us what not to do and sort of we learn from his example and his foolishness gene's character uh, sort of took notes from who uh, Napi is in the stories that we grew up with and so part of what i do is I publish Noppy books, I publish Noppy graphic novels, as well as all sorts of different subjects, residential school, boarding school, and I also help authors uh, get their books published and, and available to the world. And so Noppy, really what he's about is his quest to eat. And it seems as though every story that you listen to, that's what his driving motivation is, his primal need to eat. And sometimes he'll take advantage of others just so that he can eat. And I think Nappy being persistently hungry is the burden that he has to bear. He's never full. He's always hungry. And so I think that's what he has to constantly deal with. And it's something that every story, he, he never gets satisfaction. And I think it's because of the way that he makes hunger just about himself and he'll push over anybody to, to fill his tummy any story that you read through Napi is going to go back to hunger. <laughs> Can you
0: give me an example?
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so uh, the one that I always like to mention is called Napi and the Wolves. And I'll tell you the little story about it. Nopi comes, Napi's walking along and he comes across a group of wolves that are jumping on the ice. Napi's wondering, well, what's going on here? Why are they jumping on the ice? And as he watches them, he sees them scoop down and they pick up Buffalo belly fat. Somehow it's coming, oozing out of the ice. And Napi goes, what's going on here? And he keeps watching it, and they jump a little bit more, and more belly fat comes out, and they scoop it up, and they're all sitting back full. So Napi walks over to the wolves, and he asks them, what are you doing here? What are you doing? And can you teach me? They say, of course we can teach Brother Napi." And they show him, you jump on the ice a little bit, and you just take your fill, and it's as simple as that. And so Noppy jumps on the ice, sure enough, little belly fat comes out, he scoops it up, it's just a mouthful, um, he loves it. She tries a little more, and then the wolves start to warn him, they say, you know, you need to slow down. You just only do this just for what you need. But of course, Noppy, in his pursuit to be full, goes all night, jumping and jumping and jumping and jumping, and that early that morning, he finally says, okay, this is the. there's enough now, and he reaches down to grab some instead of there being belly fat, he pulls up buffalo poop. Big piles, steaming piles of it. And you hear all the wolves laughing at him. We told you, we told you, Napi, you take your fill. Uh, but of course, Napi doesn't listen, and he always pays the price. So that's one, one example of how you know the stories relate to his constant quest to fill his tummy.
0: Eugene Brave Rock made an appearance at Comic-Con, but another celebrity who came to Comic-Con was Jonathan Joss. He plays Ken Hotate from Parks and Recreations, and he's also the voice of John Redcorn, or should I say John Redcorn from King of the Hill. He had some seasoned tortilla chips and some spice rub on his booth, and I asked him about
5: those items. Hi, everybody. Uh, This is live from the indigenous Comic-Con. At least I'm alive right now. And uh, I'm Bruce happy enough to bring New Mexico the uh, Red Corn King of the Grill massage, meat rub, and cob sprinkle. It's a wonderful spice all. Use it on an everyday basis, use it on a nice Sunday. Um, my parents had a restaurant growing up, and cooking has always been something that's a, t- a chance to bring family together. Um, and I think a Comic Con is, is all about bringing that family together. And instead of just getting an autographed picture of John Red Corn and throwing it on your shelf or putting it on your wall, I'm able to offer the red corn king of the grill rub in a way to, to bring the family members. If you make popcorn, you can sprinkle it on some popcorn. or If you want to put it on a nice tenderloin and let it marinate and cook it. But it's all about bringing family together. A chance to talk, uh, a chance to live, a chance to eat, uh, a chance to share. So before you light that fire and before you buy that meat, get you the uh, barbecue grill rub that'll make you feel like you're king of your grill.
0: Down the hall, I saw a sign that said Diné Food Sovereignty Alliance. Their table was covered with handmade game pieces because they're trying to create games for Navajo kids to learn about their culture. I tried to play a game, but that particular game incorporated Navajo language, and I'm not a speaker, so the game quickly turned into an interview
6: uh Gloria a I'm uh, Gloria Begay and I'm one of the founding members of the Dene Food Sovereignty Alliance it's a new nonprofit organization here on the Navajo Nation and uh, we're doing a lot of education and research in the focus area of restoring uh, traditional Navajo foods and the Navajo food system, uh, we have a lot of alliance partners that are helping us because it's such a big, broad, complex area, especially in restoring the food system, because um, we've got a lot of issues where. We've been in training for the last couple of years on the complexity of food systems, and we're working very closely with Vice President Nez on his food movement. Um, We're a member of the Dineh Food, um, excuse me, Dineh Community Advocacy Alliance, and we passed the Navajo Junk Food Tax and the um, no tax on fresh fruits and vegetables. And um, in our work with that organization, we went to 51 chapters, and the majority of the community people gave a lot of recommendations on um, the food issues on Navajo. Um, Insecurity, food issues, um, no access to um, good quality, um, affordable food on Navajo, leaving us a food desert, you know, um, 99% of the time. And so that's what we want to work on. And as DFSA, we want to really get our um, farmers, ranchers, and gardeners to restore their um, produce and start selling and promoting their products locally instead of um, the majority of our people going to the border towns buying food. And actually, you know, the uh, food that we're eating on Navajo is what we call imported prison foreign food, (laughs) and so we want to bring back the local uh, food that we ate 100 years ago. So we're very excited about that. We have um, a focus of developing some curriculum right now with DFSA, and um, one of the projects is um, our game-making project where uh, we've been in training for the last year in the Navajo Blessing Way and uh, what they call the 12 Holy Beings. And so we want to teach our children um, the origin stories of how, you know, the earth was created, the universe was created, um, the belief systems, the sacredness of water, uh, sacredness of food, uh, sacredness of our bodies. And um, Navajos are the... um, Stewards of the land and the universe. We have to take care of it. We have to be healthy to do that important work. And we all know there's a lot of um, issues like lack of water now, um, contaminated water and land from uranium and coal mining. So there's a lot of issues of um, that's impacting, you know, the food production on Navajo. So we're really um, excited about the project because. We have a lot of support, we have a lot of partners and you know, we can't do it alone. So we're excited to join others and, and help, you know, get the food back on track for the Navajo people being a local product.
0: Next I met with Enoch, he's Navajo and Oneida and I noticed the design on his t shirt he was wearing, which he created himself, had food on it.
7: Uh, hello, my name is Enoch Enwire. Uh, I run Reclaim Designs, which is my own uh, graphic designing apparel company, along with my brother, Manassa Enwire. But I have a design where I modeled uh, the Rebel Alliance seal and basically incorporated uh, Iroquois designs and symbols within them. So, within the image around the, the Rebel Alliance symbol, I have uh, corn, beans, and squash, and the reason why I put that is because uh, they represent the three sisters, and the reason why the three sisters are so important is because they provide sustenance and they came from the sky world. On the bottom of the de- the design, I have tobacco, and tobacco has a huge significance, not with just... Uh, Iroquois, uh, the Iroquois Confederacy, but with other tribes as healing, prayer, and so that's why I also incorporate it. And I also have like vines of uh, uh, strawberries, and the reason why I have that is because um, growing up, my mom would always talking about uh, picking strawberries, and I would, as growing up, I would soon learn that it's actually a medicine uh, plant to for healing and for, you know, to strive for a good life and to have a good uh, mentality, uh, well-being and and things like that. And so uh, in the middle is uh, my interpretation of the Hiawatha wampum. Um, Then on the bottom I put sky domes and uh, each of them have, again, the three sisters on top of them. And so that's basically the design, the sum of the design.
0: In another artist's room, I met with Maria Wolf Lopez. She's a freelance comic book artist and illustrator. Her booth was filled with tons of beautiful and gnarly illustrations of wolves and werewolves, which I love. I really love werewolves. Wolfman is my favorite monster. Uh, Here's Maria or Wolfie. People either call me Maria or Wolf.
8: That's a nickname that was given to me in grammar school because I just started drawing tons of wolves. um, And I've always been fascinated with them, too. So either girls would call me Wolfie or guys would just call me Wolf. So Maria doesn't exist no more, that's for sure. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, Growing up drawing wolves and then getting into more of the fantasy world started liking werewolves and I would have arguments with cunts and girls fangirls of course about vampires and stuff. I'm like no they're gonna die easily. Pretty boys don't even have nothing. You want a big muscular beast that can like rip people to shreds. So and on top of that too that was actually my first horror movie I watched was with a werewolf. It was um, American Werewolf in Paris. The be- the decent sequel? Of course, <laughs> the London one's the best one, but that was my first horror movie and it was a werewolf one and then after that it's just an obsession about werewolves.
0: Uh, you have some interesting uh, illustrations here. They look like some big beefy werewolves eating some food. Can you tell me the the story behind that? Well, yeah,
8: so what happened was uh, it was my 25th birthday and usually I'll post a picture that just represents my birthday and stuff and once again, it was my love for werewolves. And it was on a Wednesday. And there's a hashtag on Instagram that goes "Werewolf Wednesday," so people just upload werewolf pictures on Wednesday. And I started joining that. But my birthday was last year was on uh, was on a Wednesday, and I drew a big old beef beefy werewolf, super muscular, and he's eating a beefcake. And I wanted to be really adorable and really cute. And I took it to other conventions and other people right away. Oh, I really like this idea or I really like this concept. And I was like, yeah, you know, it'd be cool. if we started having them eat tiny human food because they're just so massively huge. And then the more and more I kept talking to other people and the more and more people said, yeah, do that. You know, go for it. So I started doing an Instagram uh, for Inktober. I started doing uh, the werewolves eating food and I was telling my audience, what do you recommend right so it was a vote uh the highest is sushi everybody want to see sushi werewolf eating uh so i definitely did that i did sushi i did the uh rice balls i did pizza i did a a sandwich and right now i'm working on spaghetti i'm working on soup right now what was the other one i'm working on i have a couple i actually have a list because i started writing down like favorite foods and i started asking my friends and my classmates too like what's your favorite food and then they just, uh, that's what I'm gonna do next is have a bunch of werewolves, super huge muscular werewolves, eat, eating tiny little foods. And I think it's just really cute. And hopefully I could get at least 50 drawings down, 40 to 50, put them all together and then make like a small little booklet and put it like, you know, something special for the people who really wanted this book. So, but yeah, I mean, I've always been fascinated with food. Naturally, that's just who I am. I'm a foodie, so I'll eat anything. Like, I mean, it's all good. If I don't like it, it's at least because I tried it once and I didn't like it. But most of the time, I'm just like, oh, you know, this is wrapped around something and it's you know, and then it has this of this juices and I'm like, yeah, man, it sounds all good. (laughs) Or like some people are like, oh man, that looks like really greasy or like really nasty. I'm like, eh, gonna try it anyway. I'm like, (laughs) So I don't complain at all. But no, I enjoy, I enjoy food. I enjoy the look of food. Uh, I love cooking in general. I, uh, compared to my roommates, I'm the only one that actually cooks the most. And I'll use all the utensils. They really have only frozen food. So that's pretty much it, and I can't do too much like eating out and stuff; it just makes me sick. So that's why I like cooking, and I, you know, grew up cooking with my mom. So she taught me at a really young age, and I was always that kind of person who was like, "Ooh, I want to make," you know, like one of the dishes I've been trying to make one day is rack lamb, because I just like how it's like a crown of like meat, and I'm just like, "How do you do that?" <laughs> so that's probably going to be the one thing I want to learn. But you know, I'll come up with my own recipes, chili. Uh, pulled pork, uh, barbecue ribs, you know, uh, chicken, wings, like I said, it's it's all good. I'm never going to say no to it. And that's the cool thing about it, too, because if I'm hungry for something, I'm like, you know what, I'll I'll totally spend two hours trying to make a dish that I could have just drove to buy it, but it's more special that way, too.
0: So, yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, If you met a werewolf in real life, uh, what would you make for it or what? where would you take him out to eat? It seems like the rack of lamb would be a natural uh, a natural meal there for, for a werewolf. Man, rack of lamb,
8: there's either two places I would go just because I want to see how the, A, a barbecue place, because I'm thinking of all the barbecue sauce. Like, I could just imagine him like going through each rib and his fingers are just like dripping with barbecue sauce. Either that or take him to a hot wing place and like see him like like just burn up with like the biggest like spiciest wing i think that would be
0: great me because those are my favorites too so <laughs> yeah definitely. maria was talking about an illustration with a wolf eating a sandwich i had to buy it it's mine now thank you so much maria in the same room, I came upon the Natachu Ink booth and saw a beautiful painting of a corn stalk. It reminded me of the Toasted Sister logo, so I had to buy it. And by the way, events like these where Native artists are selling their arts and crafts, those are the best places to buy Native art. I'm just letting you know. I talked with Elroy Natachu Jr. about some of his art pieces, and it naturally evolved into a discussion about parched corn. And one interesting thing about Elroy is that he cooks native food. He's a Zuni cultural demonstrator and teacher, and he knows a lot about traditional Zuni food.
9: With uh, parched corn in particular, when we do cultural demonstrations, especially food demonstrations, I do pre-contact and post-contact, which are two separate things pre contact is before Spanish contact, that, uh, which is totally different than the cuisine that's typically known as what's Pueblo food nowadays. It's more so into this uh, Spanish and also Mexican cuisine, but originally Pueblonian cuisine was very simple. It was always high in fats, sugars, and salts because of... Uh, us being very agricultural within our various communities we needed these type of um, nutrients so it was sort of mostly like ancient nutritional bars or foodstuffs. but when we do the parched corn it's very complex it, even though it might just be cracked corn or corn nuts it's very hard to start for one in order to um you have to age your corn at least two to three years in advance the longer the aging process the lighter of a a crunch you'll have. If it's from this year's harvest that's been dried out in the sun, it mm, will be too hard because there will be too much moisture still left in the kernel itself. So if you let your kernels age at least two to three years in advance, the cells will start to deteriorate and the kernel will start to deteriorate. So that way when you parch it, it'll be nice, light and airy and it won't have too hard of a crunch. And then secondly. In order to parch the corn, you would have to collect sand from a wash. And a lot of people get a little bit scared about the sand part because they think the soil will be in there. But there's no silica when you collect the sand from a wash because of the constant runoff with the wash water. It's removing all that topsoil. So that way you're left basically with beach sand. So you're just left with tiny rock granules. And originally you do it in... um, a earthen vessel, a ceramic vessel. It was usually a very thick corrugated pot to it, but then nowadays we um, would use like a cast iron kettle. Uh, that one would um, is more practical nowadays because it'll last a lot longer in the cast iron kettle. Even though it's heavy, it's more durable than a ceramic vessel. But when you do that, you heat it on a low flame and then you let it heat up and heat up And it's best that when you're parching your corn after about every 10 pounds to always change out the soil because you'll get um, little particles in the sand that'll actually burn and it'll cause all your parched corn to have that really burnt flavoring and it won't really taste good. So always change out your sand after every batch, but then when you put it in this um, kettle, it'll reach roughly... 300 to 350 degrees and once it's there you'll you'll be able to touch it But the best way to test it is if you just grab a little bit of water Sprinkle it on the sand and if it sizzles and you see the water Just like slide on the top of the sand, you know, it's ready and it's hot and What I do is I do it one cup at a time if you put in too much all of them won't pop at the same time and some might pop too early some might pop too late and then you'll have some hard and some overly done and then you'll, it kinda, you will it kind of you kind of want that perfect ratio and it's best to start out with one cup at a time that way when you parch it it'll be evenly cooked so what we use instead of um using a spoon or something like that to stir the kettle in the inside is uh a bundle of willows that have been skinned and they're straight willows that don't have no um, no nicks or anything like that and you twist um, some thread that way it'll be super strong and then you wrap the willows together and you sort of make figure eight pattern within the willow so that way it spreads them out more so like a broom instead of having them stiff together so you'll wrap them around and go around and it spreads out the willow. So that way when you're stirring it, it moves the kernels around and it keeps the corn constantly moving. And it also keeps it from and gives it sort of that smoky kind of willowy smell to the kernels that gives it more of a flavor profile to it. But um, that's basically what we're doing. Once you're done with that part, you switch it and you sift out the sand particles and you shake it. I like to use a wire basket. That way I remove all the excess um, particles of um, the rock granules that are uh, they've been cooking in. And I put it in a separate bowl. And separately I mix um, a lot of um, salt. I use Zuni salt that's been collected at... Um, uh, Zuni Lake that's nearby where we live and you Let it sort of dissolve in hot water and make sure that it's like Almost like ocean water where it's very salty so that way when you grab um, You pour in the hot kernels you just use your I like to use a tablespoon and just do a tablespoon of that mixture dump it on the hot kernels and start stirring and that'll create um, instant uh, sort of um, steam so that way it's steaming and removing all of that water and just leaving a coating of salt so that way you don't have to reheat them or try and use a corn cob to um, get them salt coated or stick them in the microwave and salt them that way this way is a lot easier that way you just um, automatically have that salty coating in they say that the moisture is really good for your your skin because if you're doing it constantly it gives opens up your pores so it it might be good if you constantly do that and another fun fact is that um when you're parching the corn, if your corn start exploding and running all over the place, they, that was how the old people used to say that you never stayed at home and you were always out all over the place and traveling and you were never good in a homebody. So it, that was always one way they used to tease us and say that you never, you're never you never at home, you're always wandering all over the place and that the corn would tell on you. So.
0: Maybe I should ask this in the first place, but uh, what what the finished product is it the corn kernels and then you you boil them or can you eat them just right then and there or what what are people putting in them in their mouths?
9: So once you're done with that part, you can just eat them as is. You don't have to reboil; they're already cooked and cleaned. A lot of times, ancestrally, when they would do that, they would grind it up and then. Um, because you could just eat it as corn nuts, but ancestrally, what a lot of times they would do is they would grind it up into a fine powder and then mix it with water into sort of a slurry and slush mush paste so that way when they go out hunting, it would be easier because it would be contained in some type of a gourd and have a cork on it so that way you wouldn't have to worry about your corn kernels running all over the place when you're out in the wilderness but you can eat it as is, it was just different types of um, ways that they used to prepare the foods.
0: Near the end of my time at the Indigenous Comic-Con, I met with Ryan Singer. He's a Diné artist who works in acrylic pencil and does some sculpture work. Actually, I met with his wife first, and we got to talking about some of our food adventures and all of the food podcasts we like to listen to. Then she showed me a picture on her phone. It was a photo of one of her husband's art pieces.
10: And um, I did a post or a painting um, a while back um, called um, Butchering Day on the Death Star. So basically, it was an image of Darth Vader sitting at like a dinner table, kind of like a Thanksgiving kind of dinner, but it was like um, a big dinner that had a bunch of uh, Navajo food. It was like, um, there's a cheat, which is intestines, sheep intestines. Um, There's like ribs, like mutton ribs, sheep ribs. And there's like a stack of fry bread, and there's coffee, and there's like I think there's a can of Shasta, then all these like little things. There's salt, and there's all these little things. So it's really symbolic and really um, kind of reflects um, living on the on the Navajo reservation and kind of what you would expect um, seeing in you know like a traditional kind of like setting eating uh, eating dinner with a, a Navajo family, and I kind of wanted to. Uh, Juxtapose the position of uh, um, Darth Vader, the Death Star, you know that whole Star Wars kind of thing, and kind of mix it and have kind of fun with that whole idea. With them, you know, maybe at some point, possibly even like butchering a you know sheep on you know an outer space. Who knows? But it was just fun. You know, it's fantasy, sci-fi. So for me, it was just kind of fun. I mean, there's social elements to it personal elements to it, because I grew up on the reservation. Um, I've eaten like that, so I understand that, and, and it makes sense to me. But it was fun just to throw all that stuff together, and also being a Star Wars fan, and you know, so it was cool for me to do that.
0: If you want to see some photos from Indigenous Comic Con, visit Toasted Sister podcast.com. If you want to know more about the people you heard from, there are links on the website too. I'm Mandy Murphy, creator, host, and producer of the Toasted Sister Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.